there are few things in life that are more destructive to an individual, to relationships, and a society than discontentment. Discontentment manifests itself in many different ways, whether it's grumbling, complaining, greed, or lust. We are, discontentment is marked by not being satisfied with the things that we have, the things that God has already given us, and so we desire more and more. We always want just a little bit more, and we're never completely satisfied. And this really is the theme of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Solomon tells us that this is an evil, a grievous evil that sits upon mankind and can even be described as a torture, and that is discontentment. And the problem is the one we've been dealing with throughout this book, is that we turn to limited objects and we demand unlimited satisfaction from them. And discontentment will plague then our lives. And when we see this, we realize that the good gifts of God are never enough because we are going to them for the wrong reason. And this is a reality that is universal in human experience. I'm going to give you a couple uh, examples from a couple popular uh, songs here to see how society explains this reality. The first one is a song called All My Life uh, by a rock band that's won several awards called the Foo Fighters. In this, the singer says this, All my life, I've been searching for something. Something never comes, never leads to nothing. Nothing satisfies, but I'm getting close. Closer to the prize at the end of the rope. And then he continues, Then I'm done, done, and I'm on to the next one. Done, done, and I'm on to the next one. The lead singer here describes this never-ending search he has for satisfaction, and he just, he can't get it. And as soon as he gets the thing he wants, he gets done with it, and then he moves on uh, to the next thing. This unending dissatisfaction and discontentment. We all feed it. Uh, It is uh, the market, uh, or the guys behind so much of our marketing, that if you just get the next item, uh, your life will be better. And after all, you deserve this thing, You have a right to it. Why shouldn't you have it? Why shouldn't it be yours? And yet, we get it and we move on to the next thing right away. And we're like dogs returning to our vomit. We get the thing we want. We think it's going to satisfy. It doesn't. And we just move on to something else. And so we have this tendency to always want more and to always take more. That's the second song I want you to consider here. This one by the band The White Stripes. It's called Take, Take, Take. And the lead singer tells of this made-up encounter he has with a famous person. I think it gets to our heart so often. He says, I couldn't resist. I just had to get close to her, this, this person I had to meet. And that was all that I needed. I walked around and loomed around her table for a while, and that was all that I needed. Then I, say, then I said, I hate to bug you, ma'am, but can I have your autograph? And that was all that I needed. She pressed her lips against a white piece of paper, and that was all that I needed. Then I saw what she wrote, and my heart was in my mouth. And that's all that I needed. Then she handed it to me, and I think that she could see that that's all that I needed. I started to walk away, but then I remembered, hey, I forgot to get a picture. 
So I asked her one more time, could I have another favor? And that was all that I needed. And the song goes on like that forever. That's all that I needed. Well, then I needed this. Then I needed that. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a good friend of mine in seminary once. He was a very big, or still is, a very big uh, New England Patriots fan. And Tom Brady fan and me being a lowly Vikings fan. Uh, the Patriots were in another Super Bowl. And he, he's like, I, they, I just, they really need them to win. And I go, Mike, how many Super Bowls do you need? And he goes, I just want one more. <laughs> and I go, I just want one? <laughs> but I've been, I've been appointed to suffering, so it's all good. But it's always just one more. I'm sure if the Vikings somehow won a Super Bowl, I'd say, I just want one more. Just want one more. And this is the ubiquitous problem of discontentment. And Solomon kind of gives us a way here to understand it. Where it comes from, what causes it, and what we can do about it. And the first thing we see in this passage is that discontentment is a form of judgment. It's a judgment from God. Look at verses 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy upon mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. So a heavy evil that lays upon mankind, one that we all feel at one point or another, is that we have wealth, we have possessions, we have success and honor, and our hearts are still not satisfied. And there are many reasons for this. One of it is that the general curse upon mankind, that the finite things of life are not meant to bring ultimate satisfaction. They are limited like we are, and they are subjected to futility, decay, and entropy just as we are. Even Tom Brady will get old eventually. As Augustine has famously said, Thou hast made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. This is a part of the general judgment God has upon mankind. We are not satisfied with the things of this earth. We are not designed to be. We need God. We are made by God and for God. And so if we want satisfaction, we must have Him. And while that is the general judgment of mankind, these verses point to a more specific and intense judgment. That sometimes God withholds as a form of judgment even the most basic enjoyment of the good things of earth. He generally does this in response to idolatry. When we try to replace the infinite God with finite objects, you can be sure that God will rob you of your joy of those finite things. Put it another way, Christians, above all people, should be those who enjoy the things of earth the most and the best because we know that they're not the end goal. We don't hold on to them tightly as this is what my life is about, but we can receive them as gift. Put it another way, holiness is not marked by being angry or cranky or putting um, or rejecting all of God's gifts. Holiness is marked by godly enjoyment of good gifts because they point to God. And if we are marked by discontentment, if we are marked by always having to have the latest and the greatest, 
then we will eventually realize that getting the latest and the greatest doesn't help. It seems like every year a new iPhone comes out and you, you have to have it. It's really no different than the iPhone you had before. And a good quote for this problem uh, comes from uh, David Wells as he describes what he calls the American paradox. He says, This paradox is found throughout the West and increasingly it is being seen outside of the West. In prosperous parts of Asia, for example, the same thing is becoming evident. Right? What, wherever prosperity goes, we tend to see this, he says. It is that we have never had so much and we've never had so little. Never have we had more choices, more easily accessible education, more freedoms, more affluence, more sophisticated appliances and better cars, better houses, more comfort or better health care. This is one side of our paradox. The other side, though, is that by every measure, depression has never been more prevalent, anxiety has never been higher, and confusion more widespread. We are not holding on to our marriages very well. Our children are more demoralized than they ever have been as teens and are committing suicide at the highest rate ever. We are incarcerating more and more people, and cohabitation has never been more widespread. And he goes on and on and on. We have so much stuff. So many good blessings from God, and yet we've never been so depressed and anxious. And this is exactly what Ecclesiastes 6 is getting at. God withholds the enjoyment as a judgment on people, on communities, and yes, even upon nations. Because we have rejected the gift giver for the gifts. And without the gift giver, the gifts become utterly meaningless and unsatisfying. And try as we might to change that by buying more stuff or entertaining ourselves to death or having more experiences or sleeping around or trying to change your biology, you can't escape the judgment of God. None of it works. And Solomon warns us later on in this passage, we are not able to dispute with one stronger than us. If you're wondering who that one is, it's, it's God. You are not able to fight against him. Try as you might. It is as if a new featherweight boxer is trying to take on the heavyweight champion of the world. It's not a fair fight, and you're just not going to win. So Solomon lists for us some failed ways people try to overcome this discontentment. It's a universal experience. How does man try to deal with it? Because we are often a hard-headed people. We have to learn it the hard way. Think for a moment. I know you've done it. I know you've got something in the back of your head that you've convinced yourself at times that if you just get this thing, whatever it is, it's going to work out for you. It's going to fundamentally change. And you will justify it. You will rationalize it in any way in your head that I, I have a right to this thing. You get that fleeting pleasure, and then eventually the joy diminishes, and then you set in some amnesia so you can move on to the next thing. And Solomon says this is often how we try to overcome it. And there are general areas of life that we try to do this in. And the first is wealth. Verse 2. God gives the wealth. We read in chapter 5 last week, the end of chapter 5, God gives the wealth. He gives you the ability to enjoy it. Chapter 6, God also gives wealth and withholds the ability to enjoy it. 
We are told in many different ways that the good life is found in accumulating as much possessions as possible. And it is a tale as old as time. Every generation has tried it. Every generation has tried hoarding stuff to fill the hole. Jesus warns of this in the Gospels many different ways. He speaks of a rich man hoarding all of his wealth, and then he says this, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You can't take it with you. Try as you might to hoard as much stuff in this life as possible, you can't take any of it with you. And so Christ commands his followers to be generous to others, to be generous for the mission of God, and to be generous with his church. Why? Because he instructs us to store up treasures in heaven, to store up that which will never rust or decay. Or as Jim Elliot put it, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Wealth will not bring satisfaction. It's all fool's gold. Next up, people try to overcome this dissatisfaction with relationships, with other people. And the chief example of relationships is the family. Look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good, good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. In the ancient world, having children, and lots of them, was considered to be blessed by God. Now, we need to recover some of that thinking today. We, we view children primarily as burdens. They, they're not. They are a lot of work, but they're not burdens. They are blessings. But fruitfulness was viewed, especially from in the book of Genesis, as a blessing to be fruitful and multiply humanity was commanded to do. So much so that when you see Sarah and Abraham are unable to have children in the book of Genesis, this is a major problem. Something has gone wrong. God loves fruitfulness. God loves children. Satan loves barrenness. Satan loves sacrificing children. He looks at them as a burden or a commodity. But Solomon warns us here that even if you were to father 100 children, and you lacked satisfaction, it would be better for you to be, born, or to be a stillborn child. That's one of those sucker punches he often throws at us. The imagery is meant to jar us. You have fruitfulness compared with barrenness. You can have as many children as you want, but if you're not satisfied, it would be better for you to really have never been born at all. Is he saying that death is better than life? No. His point is that both end up dead. And one just had a lot of frustration before he got to that point. What's better than both of those is to live a life that has contentment. Discontentment, in other words, is a corrosive acid that eats away at life. And so, brothers and sisters, you really do need to hear this. If you nurture and dwell on discontentment, it will ruin your life. It will make life miserable for you and everybody in your immediate sphere. How many marriages are destroyed or made unbearable because the husband or wife is stuck in a discontentment with their spouse? 
They think the grass is greener over there. Instead of treating their spouse as a gift given from God, why can't she be like this? Or why can't he be like this? He's like that over there. They think the grass is greener and that the problem is primarily in the object or the gift that God has given them. So eventually they divorce. They get remarried thinking, all my problems are gone with him or her. And then they get married and realize that the problem is is still there. And if you're really hard-hearted, you still think it's that person instead of you and your discontentment. And so we see when the divorce rate that each successive marriage, the divorce rate gets higher and higher and higher because the problem is internal, not external. The problem is generally you and not your spouse. I'm not talking about people who are adulterous or abusive. But generally, the problem is your heart and not your spouse. It is how you approach them and what you demand of them. And so as good of a blessing as a family is, it cannot overcome discontentment. If your heart is bent towards discontentment, getting married, having lots of kids, isn't going to make it better. It's not going to solve things. Third, what about living a really long time? Maybe having a long life will overcome discontentment. Solomon speaks here of living a thousand years twice over, over 20 lifetimes. Maybe if you lived for 2,000 years, you could overcome that discontentment. I mean, we know, personal experience, uh, the sorrow of people dying young, uh, the unexpected death. Sometimes when an older person dies, people say things like this, at least he had a long life. Solomon says, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Every death is a tragedy, and it is our great enemy. Whether you die at one or die at a hundred, death is the enemy. You cannot live long enough to overcome the vanity and frustrations of this life. You cannot get satisfaction by artificially extending your life, even if you lived a thousand years, because you would still be stuck living in a broken and fallen world. In in Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings, there is one race of people who are immortal. The elves, they, they live forever. And if you read the books carefully, you see that them living forever ever becomes a burden and a curse to them because they're stuck living forever in a broken world with evil and sin. It's a weariness to continue to live in a fallen world. To put it another way, you not only need to be saved from your sin so that you can have eternal life, but you also need an eternal and perfect kingdom to live in. You need both to be satisfied. And only Christ can provide that. So those are three ways that people try to overcome the discontentment. Solomon says, doesn't work. And the heart of the problem is our appetite. Verses 7 through 9. He says, this is, this is the heart of the problem. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Now, this is both literally true and figuratively true. You will, after this, you will go home or you'll go out to a restaurant and you will eat. You'll spend your money to buy food so that you can eat, so that you can keep living. And then around, I don't know, 5 to 7 o'clock tonight, you're going to eat again. Because the food satisfies for a little bit amount of time, 
but it doesn't ultimately satisfy. This is part of what God has designed into this universe, that you will continually get hungry because you are being taught over and over again that unlike God, you are dependent. God exists on his own. He doesn't need food. You need food. You need sleep. You are dependent upon other things that continue to exist. And so all throughout Scripture, food is given to us as a picture of our need of God, of something deeper. Jesus is the bread of life. We eat this spiritual meal every week to remind you that you need daily and weekly nourishment. The new covenant in Isaiah 55 promises that he will, God will invite people to come and to eat for free. That you will be sustained. In the, in the new creation, we are promised access to the tree of life and the river of life where we can eat and drink forever and be truly satisfied. But just as our appetite for food in this life is never satisfied, so is it true that none of our appetites are really satisfied. We've never seen enough, we've never heard enough, we've never done enough, and we've never lived long enough. And so we consume and we consume, we buy and we buy, and we fill our houses with junk, which in a few years we throw in the dump so we can fill our houses with more junk. And the heart of the problem is our never-ending desires and that we misdirect them. So here's, here's the truth. The more you feed an appetite, the larger the appetite grows. The more you eat sugar, the more your body desires sugar. The more you feed your heart with lust and dark thoughts or anxious thoughts, the more you will reap what you have sown. This is how God has designed the universe to work. And our appetites grow and grow and grow, and then they become the rulers over us. And so Solomon wraps up this section by pointing us to contentment. So you have the appetite, it's never satisfied, but then he says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. What is better than wandering around following your appetites? It's the sight of your eyes. What does he mean by that? It's that you see the things in front of you and you are satisfied in them. You're not wandering around always looking for the next thing. To be content and thankful for what God has already given you. And it's here that we, we really do need to pause. because we can, we can take this in a really bad direction. Let's ask the question, do I need to be happy and content in every situation? And the answer is both yes and no. Both yes and no. There is such a thing that you see throughout Scripture that can be described as a godly discontentment. Right? There's a way to be righteously discontent. When our desires align with the character and the mission of God and we desire to improve bad situations and we desire to help others, it's okay to be discontent. If you have an indwelling sin in your life, you should be discontent with it. And that discontentment should move you to action. If you cannot provide for your family, you should be discontent with that and take the necessary steps to remedy that. If you're looking for a righteous success to express the creation mandate to have dominion over this world 
And you want to do that not out of some selfishness, but out of love of God and neighbor. It's okay to be discontent and to pursue success. But all of these are to be measured and determined by the character of God and his declared will. Put it another way, you shouldn't just throw up your arms when you see a bad situation and say, ah, I just got to be content. That's not godliness either. But such discontentment does not lead to selfishness. It does not lead you to doubt God, but rather it motivates faithful action in which you trust God, you trust that he's sovereign, and you trust that he's going to provide for you as you go out. So in a bad situation, you can be both content and discontent. You can be righteous and ask God for deliverance. That's not wrong. That happens again and again in the Psalms. Here's a bad situation. I'm going to pray that God changes it. You can ask God for deliverance. You can plead with him and you can trust his sovereignty. And here's the kicker. Even if he says no, or even if he says wait a bit, you can still be thankful. That's the, that's the mark between ungodly discontentment and godly discontentment. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. He says, even in tough times, we have far more mercies than afflictions. Even if you're going through a dark time and you're rightly discontent with the situation you're in, God has still given you more gifts than you recognize. And you can be thankful even in a dark season. But if we are truly discontent, you're in a dark season and it's ungodly discontentment, if that situation changes, your discontentment won't change either. Because the heart is broken. And only God can change the heart. Therefore, Solomon says, verses 9-12, through 12, don't strive against God. Here's his solution. Don't fight against God. Striving after the wind is foolish, but striving against God is utter stupidity. Trying to catch the wind? Yeah, you're just being silly. Trying to beat God? Well, I don't have words for that kind of nonsense. And discontentment is ultimately rooted in rejecting God and trying to replace him with finite things like money, possessions, food, or whatever your appetite is desiring. Verses 9 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and what is known, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He laments the finite nature of man, our limitations. He says man talks and talks and it adds nothing. But God has already named things. Things have already been named and man tries to talk. Man tries to control the future and to know what will come after him. But only God knows it. And so we are reminded that you cannot fight against someone stronger than yourself. And God is infinitely stronger than you are. So here's the instruction. Stop it. Stop striving after the infinite and trying to find it in the limited. Stop demanding what those things cannot and will never give you. 
and stop pretending that you are in control and that you are God because you aren't and you can't beat him. If you want to know how to live well in life, that's the starting place. Instead, we are called to trust him, to receive his good gifts with open hands, and know that he both gives and he takes away. He gives you good days and he gives you bad days. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And we should echo what Paul says, that he has found the secret to contentment so that he can go without or he can be in plenty. And here's the secret of contentment, according to Paul. Faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that Christ rules, knowing that he reigns over everything, knowing that he directs your path, knowing that he blesses you, knowing that he disciplines you, knowing that he sustains you, and that you are called to act in faith. So the question has become, how then, Levi, do we enjoy the good gifts of God without letting them become God replacements? How do we do that? And I admit to you, that's hard. We're all sinners. It's much easier to focus on what can be seen and what can be touched. And it can feel holy in response to that to devalue God's creation and to look at good gifts and say they're bad, but that's not holiness. That's just another form of sin. So how do we do this? I've been reading a book uh, by Joe Rigney. If you don't know him, he's the president of Bethlehem College and Seminary here in the Twin Cities. The book is called The Things of Earth. And he wrote these words, and I found them really helpful. He said this, When we love God supremely, we are free to love creation as creation and not as God. Because divine excellence is really present in the gift. We are free to enjoy it for his sake. God's gifts become avenues for enjoying him. Beams of glory that we can chase back up to the source. We don't set God and his gifts in opposition to each other as though they are rivals. God reveals his grace and his goodness through his gifts. And you have to keep that in the front of your mind. That God created this universe. He created you to be a creature in this universe, to experience him in a physical reality. And so we must not separate the gift from the giver. The wicked hedonism of our day separates the gift from the giver, the creation from the creator. As it says, there is no creator, there's only the gift, and I am going to worship and pursue that gift. We cannot go that way. But some wrongly insist that holiness is found in separating the gift from the giver by denying the goodness of the gift. And thus, in a roundabout way, they do exactly what the hedonists do. They rip apart God and his gift. They reject the goodness of the giver. They make the same mistake by making the primary point of life or the primary thing the gift. It's either the primary good or it's the primary evil. But the primary thing remains God. So brothers and sisters, true contentment is found in trusting God and rejoicing in whatever he gives you with true thankfulness. Gifts are given to be enjoyed for the glory of God. And if you harbor discontentment in your heart, it will make your life unbearable. 
it will eat away at it like the worst acid out there. So don't demand the infinite from the finite. These good gifts are shafts of God's glory given to those who do not deserve it so that we can receive them with thanksgiving. Put it another way. Enjoy the sweetness of chocolate cake to the glory of God. Enjoy the warmth of your spouse to the glory of God. Your spouse is a gift. Enjoy the blessings of your kids to the glory of God. And remember, they are gifts that point to something bigger than themselves. Do not strive against God, for he is stronger than you. And see both good and evil in this life, and may it increase your desire for the kingdom that is eternal. The kingdom that Christ and Christ alone brings. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can see shafts of glory of your goodness in the things of this earth. But Lord, train our hearts and our minds not to be blinded by those things, but to use them as reminders of who you are. Lord, if there be discontentment in our hearts, if we always are desiring something more, something more that is really less, forgive us and teach us to find true contentment in your good grace and to train our hearts and our minds to look unto the coming of Christ and his kingdom where we may enjoy pleasures forevermore. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.